Section six of Lives of Greek Statesmen by George William Cox. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Pisistratus, Part Three. While Hippias was thus guarding himself against possible dangers, his enemies were intent on devising means for bringing about the expulsion which he dreaded. Of these enemies, the most earnest and the most powerful were the men of the Alcmyonid tribe, headed by Megacles, the father-in-law of Pisistratus. Many years before this time, the Alcmyonids had undertaken the contract for the restoration of the Delphian temple, which had been burnt by accident, and they secured to themselves the lasting gratitude of the Delphians by going far beyond the terms of the bargain. The front was to be built simply with common tufa. The contractors covered it with Parian marble. By this liberality, they more than neutralized the failure of their attempt to occupy Lepsidrion, a post on the mountain range of Parnes, on the borderland between Boeotia and Athens. From this post, they hoped to carry on their enterprise for the overthrow of the Pisistratid tyranny, but Hippias succeeded in dislodging them from it and indeed he seemed able to bid them defiance through his friendship with the Spartans, and his alliance with the Thessalians, as well as the Macedonian chief Amintas. Still the Alcmyonids were not discouraged. The Delphians were already in their debt, and this debt was increased by further gifts from the Alcmyonids, who exacted only the one condition, that to all Spartans who might consult the oracle, the answer should be ended with the form, Athens must be set free. Tired out with the reiteration of these words, the Spartans, going sorely against their own inclination, sent a force by sea under Ancomolias, which landed at the little harbour of Phaleron. Hippias was prepared for their coming. The Spartans were utterly defeated, and their leader was slain but the Delphian god repeated still only the old command, and the Spartan king Cleomenes was charged with carrying out a second invasion of Attica. His troops were met in the first instance by the Thessalian mercenaries of Hippias, but these on losing a few of their number turned and fled straight to Thessaly, and Cleomenes, advancing to Athens, shut up Hippias within the Pelasgic wall. Even now, so far as could be seen, Hippias had nothing to fear. The Spartan incompetency in sieges was already almost a byword. In a few days, or within two or three weeks at furthest, they would depart, and in the meantime the besieged were amply provided with food. But an accident decisively changed the state of things. Hippias made an attempt to get his children smuggled out of the country. They were seized by the Spartans, and in order to get possession of them, Hippias agreed to leave Attica within five days, 510 B.C. It was indeed an astonishing result. A Spartan king, the natural friend of oligarchs, driven on against his will by what he supposed to be a divine command, had accomplished a work which at the time the Athenians could not have achieved for themselves. The very completeness of the success which had crowned the intrigues of the Alcmyonids might seem to draw suspicion on the tale, 
but we may nevertheless be dealing with one of those true stories which are stranger than fiction fifty years had passed since the first establishment of the tyranny of pisistratus when his son betook himself to the place of refuge which he had prepared at sigion a pillar set up on the acropolis exhibited for the execration of future ages the evil deeds of the dynasty and the names of its members later tradition in order to magnify the share which the athenians had had in the work of their own deliverance took pleasure in relating that their expulsion was followed by the deaths of many of their adherents by the banishment of others and by the infliction of political infamy atemia on the rest all this is disproved at once if the story be true that the departure of hippias was a condition dependent on the restoration of his children that hippias should have made terms for himself alone is to the last degree unlikely but the orator andocides from whom we receive these particulars jumbled together either from ignorance or wilfully the events of the campaign of marathon with those of the invasion of xerxes ten years later and we are tempted to think that in so doing he was guilty of impudent fiction when we find him placing two of his own great-grandfathers in command of the athenian demos who returned from exile and put down the tyranny of the pisistratidae the only thing that can be said for andocides is that he would scarcely have ventured to palm off the story if he had been speaking of a time for which his hearers possessed a contemporary history if the athenians had shown themselves lukewarm or indifferent at certain stages in the history of the tyranny which had thus been brought to an end the contrast of the activity which followed its overthrow was amazing within a few months after the departure of hippias the constitution underwent the reforms which bear the name of cleisthenes and these reforms were followed by an outburst of military energy which placed the athenians at the head of the whole ionic race and made them formidable rivals of the most powerful dorian cities the startling changes accomplished with such astonishing rapidity drew from herodotus the emphatic declaration that freedom of speech must be a right good thing since under their tyrants the athenians were in war no better than their neighbours but on being rid of them rose at once to pre-eminence the reason being that forced service for a master took away all their spirit whereas on winning their freedom each man made vigorous efforts for himself athens was free but hippias had by no means abandoned the hope that he might once more and finally become master of the acropolis and many circumstances were telling in his favour the very efforts made by the athenians to guard against another restoration of the tyranny told rather for him than against him to anticipate his intrigues they sent ambassadors circa 505 b c to sardis to propose an independent alliance with the persian despot in being brought into the presence of artaphernes the satrap of lydia the envoys were told that darius would admit them to an alliance if they would give him earth and water in other words if they would confess themselves his subjects to this demand the envoys actually gave their assent but their act was indignantly repudiated by the whole body of athenian citizens this incident is one of extreme importance 
and is of more significance than multitudes of the more circumstantial narratives which profess to deal with the causes of the great conflict between the east and west as for the spartans they soon discovered that they had been tricked into carrying out the designs of the alcmyonidae and that the divine command which had seemed to sanction their acts was a mere fiction for the utterance of which due payment had been made to the pythian priestess a congress of allies was summoned to meet at sparta and in this assembly plainer language was heard than had ever been addressed to either dorian or ionian ears before them hippias appeared to plead his cause and in his hearing the spartans confessed with bitter regret their folly in having been duped by the delphian oracle and in having given over the city of athens into the hands of an ungrateful demos and then went on to beg for aid in the task of punishing the athenians and restoring hippias to his lost power a few years later the spartans might have pleaded with better effect but at present the corinthians could not be brought to see that they were warming a snake which would turn around and bite them the representative of corinth sosicles burst into an indignant condemnation of this selfish and heartless policy surely heaven and earth must be going to change places he said and fishes will live on land and men on the sea now that you mean to pull down free governments and to restore in each city that most unrighteous and most bloodthirsty thing a despotism if you think that a tyranny has a single redeeming point try it first yourselves and then seek to bring others over to your opinion but in fact you have not tried it and being religiously resolved that you will not try it you yet seek to force it upon others experience would have taught you a more wholesome lesson we have had this experience and we have learned this lesson this debate of which we may accept the narrative of herodotus as a substantially correct record shows with singular clearness the nature of the political education through which the most oligarchical states of hellas were passing the corinthians and the spartans were agreed on the one hand in their hatred of any system which should even question the privileges of the ancient eupatrid houses and which breaking down the old religious barriers which excluded all but the members of those houses from all public offices and even from all civil power should entrust the machinery of government to what they termed the herd or rabble of the profane both alike further hated a system by which a man placed himself at the head of a state disowning all allegiance to its laws and subjecting everything to his own caprice at the hands of such a man the people might pass as in a moment from moderate and sober government to the grossest cruelty and oppression and even spartans would feel that such a system differed in kind from their own they were indeed under a hard and lifelong discipline but this discipline was self-imposed and it was administered by officers elected by the citizens to whom even their kings were responsible hence the corinthian sosicles could say with thorough truth that the spartans had no experience of the state of things called tyranny and therefore could have no real notion of its working the real difference between the spartans and the corinthians lay in this that the former saw and that the latter failed to see 
the true tendencies of Athenian democracy. To the former, it was clear that these tendencies must be fatal to all oligarchical rule. The latter found their mistake as time went on, and the certainty that sooner or later they would find it out formed the gist of the speech addressed to the assembly by Hippias himself. The time was coming, he assured them, in which they would find the Athenians a thorn in their side. Herodotus ascribes the confidence with which Hippias spoke to his acquaintance with ancient prophecies, but an Athenian tyrant may at the least be credited with a sagacity equal to that of a Spartan king, and Cleomenes had no doubts about the matter. But for the present the exhortations of both were thrown away. The allies unanimously refused to allow any interference with the internal administration of independent Hellenic cities, and Hippias went back disappointed and foiled to Sigeon. But if Hippias could get no help at Sparta, he might be more successful with the Persian king. Not much patriotism could be looked for in a Greek tyrant, and Hippias beyond question returned from the Spartan Congress, determined to regain his power by fair means or by foul. We cannot doubt that with this purpose he taxed the friendship of Hippoclas, the Lamsacine despot, to the uttermost, and we are expressly assured by Herodotus that from the moment of his leaving Sparta he left not a stone unturned to provoke Artaphernes, the Persian satrap of Lydia, to the conquest of Athens, in order that he might rule as a tributary of Darius. It is impossible to resist the conclusion that Darius had heard the whole story of his expulsion, and that he gave no such answer to his prayers as effectually to discourage his importunity. The influence of Hippias was in fact the turning point in the history of the East and the West, and it was impossible that his action could escape notice. The Athenians were perfectly aware of the way in which their old tyrant was employing himself at Sardis, and their ambassadors, appearing before Artaphernes for the second time, laid before him clearly the whole state of the case, and urged every available argument to dissuade the Persian sovereign from interfering in the affairs of the western Greeks. The answer of Artaphernes was emphatic and memorable, and we cannot doubt that it was given with the full knowledge and sanction of Darius. He charged the Athenians, as they valued their safety, to receive Hippias again as their lord. The Athenians retorted by a flat refusal, and thus showed that they regarded the command of Artaphernes as a practical declaration of war. As being now at open enmity with the Persian power, they sent a force of twenty ships to aid Aristagoras of Miletus in the ill-starred enterprise in which Sardis was burnt. From the regions of sober fact, we are carried away into the land of myth and fiction. On hearing that the Athenians had had something to do with the burning of the Lydian capital, Darius speaks as though he had never till then heard their name. This is a sample of the details which form the greater part of the history of these times, and they are essentially dramatic, not historical. About twelve years later, Hippias stood with a Persian host on the field of Marathon. Thus far the Persians had advanced virtually without resistance, and Hippias, we cannot doubt, would tell them of the triumphant march of his father Pisistratus from Marathon to Athens, 
just about fifty years before. In the interval, the public feeling of Attica had undergone a complete change. The servile dread of the old houses had been swept away, and every citizen had learnt that he was a member of an independent and self-governed community, and thus by a strange turn in the course of things, the banished tyrant of Athens, on setting foot once more on Attic ground, was confronted by the very man whom, as an apt disciple in his own school of tyranny, he had sent to govern the Thracian Chersonese. This time, before Hippias could reach Athens, there was work to be done, and he busied himself in drawing up his allies in battle array on the plain of Marathon. He had a vision which seemed to promise well for the recovery of his former power, but a more visible sign was regarded as pointing in another direction. A violent fit of coughing forced one of his teeth from the jaw, and Hippias lacked the readiness of the Norman Duke William in turning the accident to good account. Like the Norman invader of England, he might have taken season of the land on which he stumbled or stood. All that Hippias could do was, it is said, to bewail among his friends the fate which assigned to him no larger a portion of Attic soil than might suffice to bury a tooth. But Hippias possibly was counting more on the intrigues of his partisans in the Athenian city than on the results of an open battle. He took the Persians, we are told, to Marathon, because it furnished the most convenient ground for the operations of cavalry, yet the reports of the battle seem to prove conclusively that no horsemen fought there. If there be any truth in the story of the raising of the white shield, probably on the summit of Mount Pentelikas, a bolder or more sagacious plan could scarcely have been found for furthering the interests of Hippias than that of bringing down on the city an overwhelming Persian force, as soon as the main body of the Athenians were well on their way to Marathon. So far as we can judge from the evidence at our command, Hippias planned the landing at Marathon for the very purpose of withdrawing the main Athenian force from the city, and thus leaving it defenseless against the real attack to be made from the side of Phaleron. But for whatever reason, the plan failed, and Hippias vanishes finally from our sight. Among later writers, some like Cicero and Justin thought that he fell in the battle, others said that he died at Lemnos. He had not reached his father's years, but he was an old man before he made his last attempt to bring Athens once more under his yoke. That a dynasty like that of Pisistratus should last long was scarcely possible in any other Greek city. At Athens it was impossible. The legislation of Solon had given an impulse to Athenian political instinct which could not be arrested, although for a time the Eupatrids remained unconscious that a death-blow had been dealt to the principle of their own supremacy. But the character of their government stands out in favourable contrast with that of Greek despots generally, and there were points in which they deserved well of their countrymen. If they were not poets themselves, they could appreciate the powers of a poet in others, and the court of Hipparchus was rendered illustrious by the presence of Simonides of Chios and of the Teian Anacreon. Here also, among others, Onomacritas occupied himself with making a collection of the oracles of Musaios, until, in an evil hour, 
he allowed himself to be caught in the act of interpolating forged matter of his own. And here, too, as some should think, an effort was made to establish the text of the Iliad and Odyssey, as those poems are known to us. We thus face the gates of an intricate controversy in which two questions call for examination. The one relating to the existence of a written literature in the time of the Pisistridity, and the other to the existence of the present text of our Homeric poems in the days of Pindar or of Aeschylus. Both these questions must be met by those who would form a fair judgment in the matter, but they lead us away from the subject of Greek statesmanship. A library for purposes of reading, or for any purpose beyond that of consulting a text still handed down orally, may have been an impossibility for Pisistratus. But the only point which we have to mark is that both he and his sons, wittingly or unwittingly, did much to stimulate the mental activity of the Athenian people. End of section 6section seven of lives of greek statesmen by george william cox this librivox recording is in the public domain read by pamela nagami cleisthenes part one when at the instigation of solon the amphictyonic council declared a sacred war against cura one of the chiefs who took part in the contest was cleisthenes despot of sicyon the third of the dynasty founded by Orthagoras. Of this tyrant we have but a few passing glimpses, and all that we see drives us to conjectures which may or may not be in accordance with fact. He rules over subjects who are chiefly but not altogether Dorian, but he is not Dorian himself. The stories told of him seem to point to a bitter feud between Sicyon and Argos, but the acts which are ascribed to him may be his own, or they may merely reflect the popular antipathies among his Dorian and non-Dorian subjects. In all Dorian towns, and also in Argos and Sicyon, we find the three Dorian tribes, Helias, Daimonis, Pomphiloi, and from this fact we might perhaps gather that Sicyon had been confederated with Argos or subject to it, and that some attempt of the Argives to reassert their old supremacy may have roused the opposition of Cleisthenes. Such a quarrel would explain the story which relates that Cleisthenes, who reserved for himself and his clansmen the title of Archelaoi, or rulers of the people, also assigned to the Dorian tribes the names Oneatai, Hyatai, and Coriatai, or tribes of asses, swine, and pigs. But Cleisthenes of Sicyon was the last of his dynasty, and these contemptuous names continued to be applied to the Dorian tribesmen for sixty years after his death. It would seem, then, that the despotism of Cleisthenes was followed by the rule of an oligarchy strong enough to keep up the use of these names, and further, if this tale be true, it would follow that this dynasty was not overthrown by Spartan influence. The Spartans would beyond doubt have done away with this stigma on their Dorian kinsfolk, for it is absurd to suppose that the latter invented these epithets for themselves. But again we are told that at the end of sixty years 
the dorian tribes went back to the old tribal names while the non-dorian inhabitants accepted the name of aegialeis from aegialeus the son of the hero adrastos and if we put faith in this narrative we must infer that this method of healing the old feud was the result of a change which substituted the rule of the people for that of the oligarchs these are large and not unimportant inferences but it must be confessed that they rest on loose and uncertain data of cleisthenes we are told further that he gave his daughter agariste in marriage to the alcmyonid megacles whom we have encountered already in the histories of solon and pisistratus the story of this marriage as recorded in the pages of herodotus is a strange one at the olympic games cleisthenes bade all who might care for the alliance to present themselves within sixty days at sicyon as suitors for the hand of his daughter the invitation was accepted by many of the noblest eupatrids from greek cities from athens came not only megacles but one who by his beauty and strength excited a warmer feeling in the heart of cleisthenes than any others but hippocleides lacked prudence and as the time for the election of one of the suitors drew nigh he exhibited some wonderful feats of agility and ended by dancing on his head upon a table friend you have danced away your marriage was the only comment of cleisthenes it matters not was the terse retort of hippocleides this story belongs apparently to the large class of legends put together to explain proverbial sayings but it only adds to the darkness which enwraps the history of the last tyrant of sicyon the gathering of the suitors may as some have supposed represent an anti-dorian confederation by which the continued existence of the arthagorid dynasty was incidentally to be secured such a confederation may possibly have existed but we have no warrant for asserting it as a fact in the belief of herodotus the athenian cleisthenes the son of megacles and agariste borrowed the idea of his reforms from those of his grandfather at sicyon if it be so then the alleged changing of the dorian tribal names may be really the result of measures of a much more important kind but why a dynasty which has been distinguished as herodotus assures us by the moderation and equity of its rule should come to an end with a prince whose political virtues were at least equal to those of his predecessors and who had achieved a greater renown in war we cannot indeed explain the whole narrative points it would seem to the one conclusion that lost history can never be recovered of the younger cleisthenes the future statesman of athens we hear nothing more until he comes almost suddenly into prominence soon after the expulsion of hippias he appears as one charged with a mission to which he has devoted his life and this mission is to carry out to their logical consequences the principles which in his legislation solon had contented himself simply with declaring possibly because he himself failed to attach to them their true meaning the mere fact of the pisistratid usurpation brought about as it was in a great part by the indifference of the main body of the citizens 
showed that those principles were virtually in abeyance. This conclusion was warranted by the further fact that Pisistratus had not found it worthwhile to make any change in the forms of the Constitution. Solon had, however, given a shock to the religious sentiment on which the predominance of the Eupatrids rested. The classification which made property the title to Athenian citizenship ensured to the poorest the right of voting in the ecclesia or general assembly, and therefore also a share in the election of the archons and of the members of the pro-Buloitic council of four hundred. This was a substantial gain, but it might by careful management be kept virtually in abeyance. Citizens whose incomes placed them in the first class were no better off, unless they were tribesmen, than members of the lowest class and to neutralize them altogether it was necessary only to repress the freedom of speech which alone gave them any political power this seemingly was all that pisistratus did he might very safely and with great profit to himself allow the forms of the salonian constitution to go on undisturbed so long as he deprived them of all significance the story which tells us that he obeyed a summons which cited him to appear before the archons tells us that his accuser allowed judgment to go by default it was dangerous to press a charge against the master of a thousand clubmen or spear-bearers the expulsion of hippias restored things in theory to the position in which they had been when pisistratus made himself despot the result was not peace but a renewal of the strife and divisions which it was the very purpose of solon to put down in the present quarrel the alcmyonid cleisthenes the grandson of the sicyonian tyrant was opposed to isagoras the son of the sandras of whom we now hear for the first time of the causes of the quarrel we have no details but when we are told that the first act of cleisthenes was to substitute new tribes in place of the old, we are at once driven to the conclusion that the contest involved the very foundations of social order, and that we cannot trust the statements which ascribe this change to a mere copying of the acts of his grandfather at Sicyon, and to a growing contempt of the Ionian name. The latter assertion seems especially doubtful. It is true that the Western Ionians, of whom the Athenians were now indisputably the head, had begun to stand a little aloof from their old union with the Ionians of the East, who, after the fall of the Lydian kings, had become subjects of the Persian sovereign. But the time had not yet come when only the Asiatic Ionians cared to bear the name, if indeed they did more than answer to it themselves when so styled by their Ionian lords. All that Herodotus tells us of the measure of Cleisthenes is that he abolished the names of the old tribes, and for four tribes substituted ten, each tribe having its own phylarchos or chief, and each tribe being subdivided into ten demoi or cantons. Without going further, we can have no hesitation in saying that this classification must have involved a new principle for the simple reason that if it had not the conflict between the two leaders would never have assumed formidable proportions 
we need not however go far to seek the reasons which determined the action of cleisthenes for all practical purposes all non-tribal citizens were thrust down as we have seen into the fourth orthetic class and this class was being constantly increased by the influx of strangers allowed by athenian commerce even without this influx this class contained by far the larger portion of the population with it the discontent with which they regarded their exclusion from all civil offices was becoming a serious and growing danger to the state a man whose eyes were in any degree opened to the nature of the evil could not fail to see that the smouldering fire might at any moment burst into furious flame and cleisthenes it cannot be doubted perceived clearly that if this danger was to be avoided he must strike at the root of the religious organization of the eupatrid houses to create new tribes on the level of the old ones was beyond his power for any addition to the number of fratries or clans and of families contained in them would have been resented as a profanation and a sacrilege only one road was open to him the existing religious tribes must be set aside as political units and in their place must be substituted a large number of new tribes divided into cantons and taking in the whole body of athenian citizens according to the express statement of aristotle cleisthenes introduced into the new body thus formed many resident aliens and perhaps slaves there was nothing in these provisions which necessarily touched the houses and clans as religious societies founded on an exclusive worship their organization might go on independently of the state but that which had thus far given them their importance was that the organization of the clans was the organization of the state also the deliberate rejection of this system was thus a death-blow to the theory of eupatrid ascendancy the vehement opposition of isagoras is therefore at once explained and no room is left for doubting that it was the proposal of this change which roused his antagonism and that cleisthenes was not tempted to promulgate his scheme merely as a new method of winning popularity at the expense of a rival who already stood in his way the struggle at athens anticipated the strife between the patricians and plebeians at rome and the same controversy was repeated in the conflict between the great families of the german and italian cities and the guilds which grew up around them in the middle ages End of section seven section eight of lives of greek statesmen by george william cox this librivox recording is in the public domain read by pamela nagami cleisthenes part two but cleisthenes was firmly resolved to put an end to local factions and jealousies if it were possible to do so and the methods which he devised for this purpose were first the splitting up of the tribes in portions scattered over the country and secondly the ostracism his care in providing that the cantons of the tribes should not be geographically adjacent is shown by the fact 
that by his arrangement the five demoi of athens itself belonged to five different tribes but even in the cleisthenian demoi the religious bond was prominent each canton like our modern parishes had its own place of worship with its special rites each levied its own taxes and each kept its own register of enrolled citizens lastly each tribe had its own worship in its own chapel and the system differed from that of the old patrician houses only in the fact that it was extended to take in all the citizens alike this essential likeness in principle seems to distinguish the polity even of the most advanced of ancient democracies from the theories of modern citizenship but apart from the religious principle which was still allowed to work on cleisthenes carried out his democratic reforms practically to their logical conclusions in the probuloidic council of the four hundred each of the four tribes had a hundred representatives for this assembly cleisthenes substituted the council of five hundred to which all citizens were made eligible and here therefore each of the ten new tribes was represented by fifty senators who were it seems elected by lot nor was this the limit of the cleisthenian reforms under the salonian constitution the command in war was left in the hands of the third archon known as the archon polymarchos but now each of the tribes elected one of the ten generals with these generals the polymarch was for the present suffered to exercise a coordinate authority but the functions of the ten strategoi or generals were gradually extended to the management of the foreign affairs of the state while the archons were restricted more and more to subordinate provinces of external administration yet more the council of the five hundred sat now as a permanent court fifty of the members under the title of pritaneis taking their turn of attendance during each of the ten pritaneii or presidencies into which the civil year was divided these bodies of fifty were further subdivided into five bodies of ten each who acted as proidroi or presidents in the senate for one-fifth portion of each pritinea of which six lasted for thirty-five and four for thirty-six days each and these ten daily elected by lot one of their own number to hold during his day of office the city seal and the keys of the acropolis and the treasury thus there was now a permanent court in place of the occasional and irregular probuloidic council of solon while the ecclesia or general assembly of citizens met now not at rare or uncertain intervals but probably once at least in each pritinea or ten times during the year and their freedom of speech when they met was no longer curbed by the dread of the spear-bearers or the mercenary guards of the despot the result of the public deliberations became therefore for each citizen the expression of the will of the state and to it he yielded a perfectly voluntary obedience but according to aristotle no one can in the true and full sense be called a citizen unless he exercises in his own person a judicial as well as a legislative power and this judicial authority was extended to all the citizens by the constitution of the heliaia 
of which six thousand persons called dicasti or jurymen were yearly elected by lot six hundred for each of the ten tribes of these six thousand one thousand were set aside to fill vacancies caused by death or absence among the remaining five thousand who were subdivided into ten decuries of five hundred each the distribution of the causes to be tried by these decuries was left to the thesmothetai or six inferior archons and thus no juryman knew before the time of trial in what court he might be called upon to sit this ignorance furnished the best warrant that the journeyman would approach without prejudice the cause which he was solemnly pledged to determine with strict justice and truth in the discharge of this judicial function each decury like the whole body of the six thousand was known as the heliaia in other words as the collective state and as the verdict of the collective state must be final so from the decision of the decuries there was no appeal how far this constitution was drawn out in all its details in the time of cleisthenes we cannot say with any certainty we know that down to the days of aristides the dicasts or jurymen were not paid and that before the persian invasion they had not received their powers for dealing with criminal as distinguished from civil causes but the arrangement which compelled the archons to assign causes to the jurymen in their several courts led inevitably to the curtailment or rather to the dwindling away of their own powers the public jury courts became more and more the safeguards of civil liberty and the archons were more and more thrown into the background until in the time of pericles we find them among the officers who were chosen by lot in the time of solon no doubt the eupatrids would have preferred this method of appointment to an office which none but eupatrids could fill but when all the offices of state had been thrown open to the main body of the citizens it was clear that the method of lottery could be applied only to those offices which needed for their adequate discharge nothing more than the average honesty and ability of ordinary citizens the lot was never applied to the strategoi on whose wisdom integrity and bravery the safety of the state must depend and the mere fact that it was applied to the selection of archons shows how completely the relative positions of the archons and the generals had been reversed the final change in the standing of the archons was not the work of cleisthenes who left the citizens of the fourth class ineligible for the office the step which led to the adoption of the lot in the selection of archons was not taken until aristides nobly setting aside his deep oligarchical prejudices proposed that all magistracies should thenceforth be thrown open to citizens of all classes alike the measure was as wise as it was just it got rid of a restriction which as time went on must have become more and more irksome and galling but at athens as in the italian republics of the middle ages eligibility and election remained two very different things it was the lot alone which placed all to whom it was applied really on a level 
the lowering of the position of the archons told immediately on the court of the areopagus so long as only the wealthy members of tribes could become archons the areopagus continued to be the bulwark of the oligarchy when it became filled with archons who had been chosen by lot it was found to be nothing more than a respectable assembly of average athenian citizens in noticing this outcome of the cleisthenian reform we have been led beyond the lifetime of cleisthenes himself there was however one other change undoubtedly introduced by him which had important results in the subsequent history of athens this was the institution of ostracism or banishment by the writing of the name of a citizen on a shell and placing the shell in a cask for gathering the votes so given the theory and the means devised for carrying it out were both adapted to a political society in an early stage of growth if the education of all the citizens had gone on at the same rate and all could be regarded as having the same respect for law there would have been no need for any such safeguard but this was not the case the eupatrid was naturally as anxious to bring the new state of things to an end as the non-tribal citizens could be to maintain and extend it he would even hate it the more because in his eyes its result must be the utter subversion and extinction of religion for him therefore the temptation to upset this odious constitution would be almost irresistible and if the attempt should be made by a man like pisistratus or isagoras the state could look only to the main body of the people to come forward in defence of the law in other words the path to peace must be found through civil war it became therefore a matter of the first importance to anticipate the plots or intrigues or violent usurpations of such men and to do the work of the bodyguards of a despot without having recourse to brute force or bloodshed the need of a machinery which should accomplish this is strikingly shown in the saying attributed to aristides that if the athenians knew their own interests they would soon put an end to the political rivalry between themistocles and himself by hurling them both into the barathron cleisthenes would have had no wish to hurl either into the abyss nor did he see why at the worst the state should lose the services of more than one of its citizens but for the present the overweening preponderance of any one man involved dangers from which the state ought to be protected and cleisthenes left it to the citizens to decide once perhaps in each year by a secret and irresponsible vote whether amongst their own body there was any one whose absence was a thing to be desired for the safety of the whole community if they should so decide the citizens so sentenced departed ten years into an exile which brought with it neither loss of property nor civil infamy atemia the working of the institution was very simple when the senate of five hundred had determined that there was need of using the instrument of ostracism the citizens were invited to inscribe each on a separate shell the name of the citizen who in their opinion ought to be banished no one could be thus driven away unless at least six thousand votes were recorded against him in other words 
unless a fourth of the whole body of citizens desired his absence it might indeed happen that more than one man might be so condemned but by no possibility could more than four be driven away at the same time and if no one had as many as six thousand votes given against him then no one was ostracized if on the other hand any one was condemned by a sufficient number he received notice to quit athens in ten days but except that he could no longer remain there he was in no other respect the worse the desired result was obtained without bloodshed and even without strife and by a mode which left no room for the indulgence of personal ill-will two rivals like themistocles and aristides might wish to banish each other but if the former set the machine of ostracism in motion he might for all he knew bring about his own banishment instead of that of his opponent or possibly the citizens might banish a third man whom neither of them had thus far regarded as formidable the engineer is commonly said to be hoisted with his own petard and Cleisthenes is no exception to the supposed rule which makes the inventors of punishments victims of their own devices. Cleisthenes is spoken of by some as the first man ostracized. There is no evidence whatever for the fact. The first man on whom the vote fell was Hipparchus, a kinsman of the Pisistrati, and this fact proves that if adherents of Hippias went with him into exile, they went of their own free will. Ninety years after the time of Cleisthenes, the last vote fell on Hyperbolus, who sought to bring about the banishment of statesmen whom he was conceited enough to term his rivals, but it was held that the ostracism had done him too much honor. On the whole, the Athenians had no cause to be ashamed of a device which did them far more good than harm, and which was so far from being the necessary fruit of democratic suspicions and jealousies that it fell into disuse just when the government of athens was most thoroughly democratical this constitution with its free-spoken ecclesia or general assembly and its permanent pro-bouloidic senate or court isagoras determined if it were possible at all hazards to destroy his eupatrid instincts would assure him that unless the impulse given by freedom of speech and the admission of citizens generally to public offices should be speedily repressed, the idea of restoring the old ascendancy of his order must be given up as hopeless. He was not disposed to regard it as hopeless yet, but for him the matter was one of action, not debate. He appealed to the Spartan king Cleomenes, who eagerly took his part. Sending a herald to Athens, he charged the citizens to banish those among them on whom the curse of Chilon rested. Compliance with this demand would make it impossible for Cleisthenes to remain at Athens, and the terror inspired by this curse was still so great that the citizens durst not refuse obedience. Cleisthenes left Athens with many of his friends, and Cleomenes, having entered the city with a small force, banished seven hundred families whose names had been given to him by Isagoras. But here his success ended. The council of five hundred refused to be dissolved, and the Spartan king, with Isagoras and his followers, 
was constrained to take refuge in the Acropolis. But they were not well provided like Hippias, and before three days were over, Cleomenes agreed to depart with his Spartan troops and with Isagoras. For the adherence of Isagoras he made no terms, and the Athenians had now become so exasperated that they would be satisfied with nothing less than their death. The departure of Cleomenes was followed by the immediate return of Cleisthenes with the seven hundred exiled families. The recent events had shown plainly that between Athens and Sparta there was a deadly quarrel, and the Athenians therefore resolved to anticipate the intrigues of Hippias by sending their own envoys to ask for an independent alliance with the Persian king. This embassy, the result of which we have already had to notice, preceded only by a little, while the Congress at Sparta, from which Hippias returned to Sigeon, to renew the entreaties which led to the disaster of the Persian host under Datis and Artaphernes at Marathon. We can scarcely suppose that Isagoras ever again set foot on Athenian soil, nor have we any reason for thinking that Cleisthenes had again to leave the city for whose political welfare and growth he had done so much. But a veil falls over their subsequent personal history, and we have to content ourselves with marking the contrast between the traitorous selfishness of Isagoras and the resolute devotion of the man who resolved that the work of Solon should be carried on to its legitimate issue, and who allowed no dangers to divert him from his task. End of section 8section nine of lives of greek statesmen by george william cox this librivox recording is in the public domain read by pamela nagami polycrates in strong contrast at first sight with the prudent moderation if not the statesmanlike sagacity of the western hellenic tyrants is the violent and oppressive rule of some who gained despotic power on the coasts and in the islands of what was known as sporadic or scattered Hellas. In continental Greece, as the country between the Cambunian range and the southern promontories of the Peloponnesus was termed, arbitrary or senseless violence, though it was not unknown, was still an exception. But it is well to see the character which Hellenic sovereignty might assume in cases where there was no check whatever from popular opinion, and where also the influence of the colossal despotisms of the East was the strongest. The tyranny of Polycrates in Samos was contemporary with that of the Pisistratidae in Athens. Of his parentage nothing is known. His greatness began with himself, and with himself it ended and both his prosperity and his fall stand out with startling vividness in the popular accounts of succeeding generations. Whatever the city of Samos may have been before his time, Herodotus declares emphatically that he made it the most magnificent in the world, and beyond doubt splendor was chiefly and almost exclusively the object at which he aimed. This end he could reach only by amassing power, and to increase his power 
he was ready to make or to break arrangements with any princes whose strength might be useful to himself or whose weakness might hamper his action the task of making himself a tyrant was it would seem an easy one it was accomplished according to herodotus with the aid of his brothers pantagnatas and Silosen, and of fifteen heavy-armed soldiers he could not therefore have had to contend with those elements of growing freedom which made the enterprise of pisistratus so hazardous at athens but whatever constitutional safeguards samus may have possessed they were set aside by polycrates some little time before the conquest of egypt by cambyses the son of cyrus the checks which the lydian monarchy under croesus had offered to the aggrandizement of local despots had been removed by the fall of that king on the capture of sardis by the persian hosts and beyond fear of the sovereign who ruled far away at susa there was little to repress the ambition of unscrupulous schemers in the greek cities of lower asia or the islands of the aegean polycrates soon found his brothers in the way pantagnatas he therefore murdered Silosin the younger he drove into exile and then probably because he was not acquainted with the designs of cambyses or possibly before these designs had yet taken shape in the mind of the persian king he entered into a close alliance with amasis the founder of the last dynasty of egyptian kings before the persian conquest amasis had shown some greek leanings by marrying a greek woman of cyrene and polycrates could not fail to see the benefit which he might derive from the friendship of a prince under whom greek merchants in egypt enjoyed a time of exceptional prosperity to a samian tyrant an army without a navy was of very little use and polycrates bent his mind wholly to the formation of a fleet his success we are told was surpassed only by that of minos the cretan king whose exploits belong to the age of dionysus and ariadne of theseus and the minotaur that the ships of polycrates became the terror of the neighbouring cities and islands we may well believe we are assured that they plundered foes and friends alike he was opposed by no combined action the men of lesbos came to the aid of the citizens of Miletus, but their efforts failed and being carried as prisoners to samos they were compelled to dig in chains the moat which surrounded the wall of the city but the time came when the position of his egyptian ally became one of great peril and polycrates acted towards him with his usual selfishness the didactic tendencies of a subsequent age reversed the parts played by polycrates and amasis and ascribed the breaking off of the alliance to the latter because it had become necessary to account for the utter humiliation of the former polycrates was in short another croesus over whose glory no shadow had fallen he must therefore experience a catastrophe not less signal and thus we are told that his unalloyed prosperity became a cause of grief and misgiving to the egyptian king who reminding him of the divine jealousy which had decreed the fall of croesus 
advised him to inflict some severe pain on himself if none should be sent to him from the gods seek out so he counselled him that thing the loss of which would most deeply grieve thee and cast it away so that it may never come to mortal hand and if therefore thy happiness should still continue unmixed with woe remedy it in the manner which i have suggested to you having resolved to follow this advice polycrates chose out a seal ring of emerald set in gold the work of the samian theodorus and then rowing out into the deep sea cast it into the waters a few days later a fisherman presented him with a fish too splendid to appear on the table of any ordinary citizen and polycrates showed his appreciation of the gift by inviting the giver to supper before the time for the meal came the signet ring was found in the body of the fish much wondering at this strange incident polycrates wrote to amasis telling him the whole story the egyptian king drew the inevitable inference polycrates was doomed and it was clear that all efforts to save him from the catastrophe were mere waste of time he therefore sent a herald and broke off the alliance in order that when his ruin came he himself should not feel grief as for a friend tales such as these may be made to assume a certain look of coherence and plausibility but although myths climb like parasites round a tree they generally leave some bit of genuine historical tradition visible which makes further examination of the myth itself superfluous it is strange indeed that herodotus should not see the significance of the next fact which he mentions in the life of polycrates in seeming unconsciousness that it completely upsets the didactic story which he has just related he informs us that when cambyses was preparing for his egyptian expedition polycrates wrote proposing to help him that the offer was eagerly accepted and that polycrates sent a naval contingent manned by those citizens of samos whose fidelity he suspected forwarding with them a special request that cambyses would never allow any of them to set foot on samian soil again it follows that the alliance between amasis and polycrates was broken off by the latter and although it is altogether likely that polycrates adopted this device for getting rid of persons disaffected to his rule we can get little or no knowledge from the strange stories told us of these banished men one of these tales asserts that they advanced no further than the little island of carpathos another says they managed to escape from egypt and returning to samos were defeated by polycrates while a third states that they defeated the tyrant the sequel brings before us a terrible picture of the lawlessness and violence then generally prevalent these samian exiles betook themselves we are told to sparta where their request for help was made in a speech which the spartans declared to be so long that they had forgotten the first part of it and failed to understand the rest on the next day they appeared with an empty sack and when they remarked that the wallet wanted meal the spartans retorted that there was no need to put their parable into words 
as the empty wallet would have told its own story. However this may have been, their request was granted, and a large Spartan force accompanied them and laid siege to Samos. But if Athenians had as yet little skill in blockade, Spartan incapacity was immeasurably greater. After forty days spent to no purpose, they abandoned the task in despair. The exiles, thus deserted, sailed to the little island of Siphnos, and demanded of the wealthy inhabitants a loan of ten talents. The loan was refused, and the Siphnians, being beaten in a battle, were compelled to pay a hundred talents, with which, however, the Samians made no attempt to force themselves into their own city. After many wanderings and adventures, they were enslaved by a combined force from Crete and Aegina. This episode seems to have involved no break in the continuous prosperity of Polycrates. His power was, in fact, greater than ever, and it was therefore just at this point that he must, according to the didactic philosophy of the time, fall under the stroke of the divine jealousy, which, like the lightning, smites everything that is most exalted. He had made his city, as it is said, the wonder of the world, and he had taken delight in gathering round him, like Pisistratus at Athens, those who had won fame in every branch of art, or who had attained renown as poets. The time was thus come at which his own fortunes must exhibit the working of the law by which all human greatness ebbs as well as flows. As at the waving of a wand, we pass, as soon as we reach narratives built up on this idea, from the region of history into that of theology, and we can but give the story as it has come down. The lyric poet Anacreon of Teos was with Polycrates when a herald was introduced bearing a message from Oroites, the Persian satrap at Sardis. Between the despot and the satrap there had been, we are told, no previous intercourse nor had the latter received from the former any injury in word or in deed. His message was marked by the deepest humility, and it besought the aid of Polycrates to deliver him from deadly peril. In reality, Oroides was seeking only to entrap the tyrant to his doom. His enmity had been excited, we are told, by a mere spirit of personal rivalry. Sitting before the doors of the king's palace, he was, after the Persian fashion, vaunting his own deeds of valor in times past, when he was silenced by the cutting retort of another Persian named Metrobates, satrap of Daskilion. What, he asked, could the bravery of that satrap be, who had failed to secure for the king the island of Samos, a prey so easy that one of the islanders with a train of only fifteen men had made himself the master of it? Without uttering a word in reply to Metrobates, or reproving him for his iniquitous counsel, Aroides resolved on the destruction of Polycrates, and went about his task with all the effrontery of Persian falsehood. He sent a herald, who discharged his errand in the hearing of the poet Anacreon. The message ran thus, Thus saith Aroides to Polycrates, I hear that thy mind is set on great things, but that thou hast not money to carry out thy designs. 
know then that king cambyses seeks to slay me therefore come and take me away and my money and keep part of it for thyself and part of it leave to me if then thou needest money i have that which may make thee ruler over all hellas and if thou believest not about my wealth send the trustiest of thy servants and to him will i show it these words roused we are told the greed of polycrates who sent his scribe myandrias to test the truth of the message hearing that the samian was nigh at hand aroides filled eight vessels with stones and then placed on the stones gold enough to cover them fastened the vessels and kept them ready myandrias came saw and was convinced that the picture drawn by aroides was a statement of plain unvarnished fact and in spite of the warnings of his soothsayers in spite of the pleadings of his daughter who had seen a vision portending to him disaster and ruin polycrates resolved on making the fatal venture the voyage was made in company with his physician democrates a man who was to play a conspicuous part in the drama of persian aggressions in europe and with many other trusty adherents the fly was entrapped in the spider's web polycrates was impaled by the satrap's orders and his samian followers were sent back with the charge that they would do well to be thankful for having escaped so easily there is no reason for doubting that the career of polycrates ended in a terrible and unforeseen catastrophe the details of the story are less trustworthy aroides addresses polycrates as though he were at the beginning of his great enterprises and not as though he had already done well nigh all that he could fairly hope to do the device of the jars of stone covered with gold we cannot dismiss as necessarily in itself a fiction for the same trick is said to have been practised by hannibal in a cretan town and a deception not unlike it was actually played off by the men of Agesta in sicily upon the athenians and seems to have decisively turned the balance of public opinion at athens in favour of their expedition to that island in the peloponnesian war but the story implies that the credulity of myandros vastly exceeded that of the athenian envoys at Agesta, who saw the same golden and silver vessels reproduced in a series of banquets in different houses to pry too closely into the contents of the jars would have been to destroy the symmetry of the tale the peculiarity of such narratives is seen in their powers of extension they are never at a loss in drawing moral lessons from any changes in the course of human affairs aroides must be dealt with by the same laws which had done their work in the case of polycrates intoxicated with his success the satrap began to think himself born to greater things after the death of cambyses he seems to have taken part with the magian usurper or at all events he did no good we are told to the persians during that usurpation or rebellion metrobates who had set him on against the samian tyrant fell a victim now to his cruelty or his ambition and when darius after the fall of the magian king ascended the persian throne aroides bade defiance to the new dynasty by slaying a messenger despatched to him from susa 
the satrap however must be made to feel the power of the king of kings chosen by lot to discharge the perilous errand a persian named bagaias carried to sardis a number of letters to be delivered successively to the scribe of aroides the first related to indifferent matters but when the envoys saw that they were received with all outward signs of reverence by those who surrounded aroides he handed to the scribe one which forbade the bystanders to guard the satrap the soldiers at once lowered their spears and seeing that he could count upon them bagaias took courage and handed to the scribe the last letter which charged the persians in sardis to slay aroides the command was instantly obeyed and thus far polycrates was avenged the expulsion of the pisistratidae from athens was followed by no convulsions and it tended largely to foster that desire for political freedom which led to the defeat of hippias and his persian allies at marathon the course of samian history after the fall of polycrates shows us partly that we are dealing with a time for which we have but scanty information and partly that the samians possessed few or none of the qualities needed to carry a people onwards on the road to freedom and self-government on his departure from samos polycrates had left as his deputy myandrias whose report lured him to his destruction on hearing of his master's death myandrias summoned the people and told them in a few words that the power and the resources of polycrates were all in his hands and that if he were pleased to do so there was nothing which could hinder him from continuing the old tyranny but as he would not himself do that which he had all along disapproved in his master and must disapprove in any one else he would lay down this power and take his place among them as a citizen subject to all the laws of the state a fair opportunity was thus offered for reverting to the condition of things which polycrates had on his usurpation like all tyrants overthrown but to use the words of herodotus myandrias was not suffered to be just and generous as he heartily wished to be his speech was followed by some scurrilous invective from a citizen who reviled him as a scamp unfit to bear rule and called on him to account for the monies which had passed through his hands seeing the peril which compliance with such a demand might involve myandrias it is said went back to the acropolis and summoned the chief citizens to appear before him one by one that he might lay the accounts before them with a folly equal to that of polycrates they fell into the trap and were made prisoners myandrias soon fell sick and all were slain by his brother lycaritas but a new actor now appeared upon the scene in the person of Silason, the exiled brother of Polycrates. During his banishment, Silason had spent some time in Egypt, where his scarlet cloak caught the fancy of Darius. Darius offered to buy it. The Samian, refusing to sell, bestowed it on him as a free gift. Darius was then simply a Persian noble of one of the seven great houses but when he was raised to the persian throne he still remembered the generosity of Silason, and when the latter came to susa and announced himself as one of the royal benefactors darius asked him how he could show his gratitude 
again refusing all money payments silas asked that he might be made master of samos and a persian fleet accordingly brought him into the harbour with myandrias himself silas experienced no difficulty and the terms on which the tyrant were willing to depart were soon arranged but myandrias had a half-crazed brother who was by no means pleased with what seemed to him a tame and mean surrender of power and privilege and this man as soon as the despot had departed opened the gates and bursting on the unsuspecting persians slew many of their chief men before he could be driven back in retaliation the persian commander ordered an indiscriminate massacre according to this version which professed to rest on a popular saying this devastation was wrought for the sake of silasen according to another it was the result of his own tyranny nor was this the end of the series of incidents brought about by the fall of polycrates carrying with him to sparta a number of vessels filled with gold myandrias placed them before the king cleomenes bidding him to take from them all that he might care to have cleomenes vouchsafing no answer to the proposal simply requested the ephors the supreme civil magistrates of sparta to send the samian away the result of this spartan integrity was that silasen retained his power for the rest of his life and then handed it on to his son iaches who was put down by aristagoras of miletus end of section nine Section 10 of Lives of Greek Statesmen by George William Cox. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Pamela Nagami. Aristagoras, Part 1. The Milesian tyrant Aristagoras is a man who cannot fairly be put into comparison with Polycrates. Of the latter, Herodotus speaks as the most magnificent of all the Hellenic despots unless indeed an exception must be made in favour of those of sicily polycrates succeeded aristagoras failed in everything but the latter may have been an altogether better man and he assuredly essayed a vastly harder task in putting down iaches the son of silason he was probably striving to foster the spirit of self-government and self-dependence amongst the ionians and he was well aware that unless this spirit could be kindled in the hellenic cities generally his cause was virtually lost he lacked the courage the ready wit and the resolute spirit of polycrates but his work might have had very different results if he could have dealt with the elements which he would have found in some at least of the states of western hellas if the story of the scythian expedition rests on any foundations of fact no greater service was ever done to a persian king than that which the milesian histiaios performed for darius when he resisted the advice of miltiades to break up the bridge across the istras and leave the persian army to his fate his warning was that even miltiades and the tyrants of greek cities generally would find it a hard if not an impossible task to maintain their position without the support of the persian king and his counsel commended itself to the large majority it is not that histiaios or his brother tyrants 
had any abstract wish to make themselves and their people dependent on a foreign despot but with him as with the rest the claims of his order were paramount and anything was lawful which might save them from falling back into the ranks of ordinary citizens whatever may have been the failures and disasters of the scythian expedition darius and his generals found themselves complete masters of their movements after recrossing the danube and after the fashion of persian kings he resolved to reward those who had aided in extricating him from great dangers his benefactors were left free to name the boon which they might wish to receive the request of histiaeus was that he might be allowed to take up his abode in the edonian town of myrkinas near the mouth of the river strymon while the middle indian coes desired that he might be established as despot of his native city in the island of lesbos histiaeus we are told was not suffered to remain long undisturbed in his possessions it is difficult sometimes to understand persian motives and persian suspicions and in all narratives which come in any degree from a persian source it is always difficult to assure ourselves that we have before us the facts as they may really have taken place according to the tale carried to darius by his general megabazos on his return to asia histiaeus was advancing by rapid strides to a power which might become formidable even to the great king his fortifications were rendering myrkinas a stronghold from which he might extend his sway over all the surrounding barbarian tribes darius would therefore do well to cut short his schemes before it became impracticable to do so a letter sent to myrkinos accordingly summoned histiaeus to sardis there to confer with the king on matters of importance he was received by darius with the assurance that there is nothing more precious than a wise and kind friend and that in taking him to susa far away from the scene of his political activity his only motive was to avail himself constantly of his experience and his wisdom as a counsellor but if by removing histiaeus to a distance both from Miletus and from myrkinas darius was getting rid of one danger he was incurring fresh perils at the hands of others who remained behind histiaeus had left as his deputy at Miletus his nephew aristagoras a man not less unscrupulous but perhaps more far-seeing than himself at the least he showed no small ability as a schemer and with greater powers of persistence he might have succeeded in carrying out some of his plans to such a man an opening for action was soon furnished the islanders of naxos had a force of eight thousand hoplites or heavy armed troops together with a large fleet of warships and they had recently expelled on what grounds or by what means we cannot say a large number of the oligarchic or eupatrid body these exiles betook themselves to aristagoras who was in no way disinclined under the pretext of helping them to make himself master of naxos and of the larger group of islands known as the cyclades by which it was surrounded but the milesian tyrant told them plainly that his own power without the aid of the satrap artifernes would not suffice for the enterprise 
the exiles left it to him to make any terms which he might think good they were ready not only to reward aristagoras himself personally but to defray all the costs of the expedition so authorized to make large promises and to hold out a tempting bait aristagoras carefully impressed upon artifernes that the conquest of naxos and of the neighbouring islands would be only a stepping-stone to the acquisition of euboea which would give him the command of the whole line of the boeotian and attic coast for this purpose he asked for a hundred ships the satrap at once offered to give double that number and the scheme received the deliberate and full sanction of darius the armament thus prepared made its way to chios with the intention of bearing down upon naxos with a north wind but the enterprise we are told was doomed to ill luck the persian commander megabates punished the captain of a mindian ship for not setting a watch on his vessel at night and bluntly refused the request of aristagoras for his release aristagoras therefore released the man himself and told megabates whose wrath was roused by this interference that he had been sent to serve as his subordinate and not to be his master without saying a word in reply megabates so the story runs sent word to the naxians of the force which was about to attack their island and before the fleet could reach naxos the people were ready to stand a siege the usual result followed the blockade was maintained in vain for four months at the end of that time the money at the command of megabates and aristagoras was all spent and the latter had been led to suspect that the former had designs for expelling him from Miletus. Everything, in short, seemed to point to the wisdom of revolting, and a message received from Histiaeus at this crisis confirmed him in his resolution. Histiaeus, we are told, had grown weary of his splendid captivity at Susa, and longed for what he chose to call his freedom. To secure this, he could think of no better device than that of tattooing a message on the head of one of his slaves, keeping him until his hair grew over it, and then sending him to Aristagoras with the verbal charge to shave the man's head and look at the skin. The message urged him to bid defiance to the Persian king, and this Aristagoras had already made up his mind to do but he had no more intention now of acting by himself than he had before his purpose was to stir up a general rebellion of all the ionians of lower asia against the persian king and to strengthen them by a close alliance with the ionians of western hellas for some unknown reason he rejected the advice of the logographer hecataeus to secure for the ionians at any cost the command of the sea and to lay hands on the treasures of the wealthy temple at Bronchidae. Instead of this, he adopted the more questionable plan of arresting all the Hellenic tyrants in the army returning from Naxos and delivering them to the people of their respective cities. At the same time, he made a profession of surrendering his own power at Miletus. Of the despots thus given up, only one, Coes of Mytilene, was punished his subjects stoned him to death. The rest were all allowed to go free. 
but aristagoras felt probably that his purpose of securing a general harmony in the revolt against the persian king had been attained his next step was to seek help from sparta the great dorian state which was acquiring for itself an informal headship over the whole hellenic race and whose supremacy was virtually admitted by ionians and dorians alike carrying in his hands a brazen tablet on which was engraved a map of the world he appeared before the spartan king cleomenes and urged on him the duty of rescuing the asiatic greeks from the slavery of persian rule he called him he said to no difficult work the turbaned and trousered persians the spartans could easily conquer and then the whole region from sardis to susa would be for them one continuous mine of wealth surely the securing of such a prize as this must better befit the dignity of sparta than petty and profitless squabbles with messenians and arcadians for a few rugged hills and stony valleys his words had clearly made an impression on the dull mind of his hearer who promised to give a definite answer on the third day when next they met cleomenes asked what the distance might be between sardis and susa with fatal candour aristagoras said that it was a journey of three months for him the march had no special terrors he knew that the roads in the persian empire were at this time excellent and the stages of the royal post were no doubt all marked out on his map of brass but for cleomenes the tidings were decisive and aristagoras was ordered to leave sparta before sunset as a last resource he went with a suppliant's branch to the king's house where he found him with his daughter gorgo the future wife of leonidas who fell at thermopylae to his request that the child then about eight or nine years old should be sent away cleomenes replied that anything which he had to say might be safely said in her hearing aristagoras thereupon entered on the task of bribery from the offer of ten talents he had risen to the bait of fifty talents when the little gorgo broke in with the words father if you do not go away the stranger will corrupt you called back to a sense of duty cleomenes abruptly quitted the room and aristagoras compelled to leave sparta hurried away to athens where in the words of herodotus he found it easier to deceive thirty thousand citizens than one solitary spartan the athenians at once promised to aid him with twenty ships but the historian was mistaken in supposing that they were in any way deceived by the milesian tyrant or by any one else the help of the persians had already been invoked by the pisistratids and the athenians had been plainly told that they were running into the jaws of destruction if they refused to receive hippias again as their tyrant athens was therefore virtually at war with the persian king and in aiding aristagoras the athenians were only carrying out a plan of which they must have begun already to count the cost and which secured to them in the end abundant wealth and a magnificent empire but ill luck was to be still the portion of aristagoras artifernes was driven into the acropolis of sardis the city a mass of reed-roofed huts was accidentally set on fire 
and the Lydians and Persians rushed in frantic terror into the marketplace. The Athenians hurried away, and under cover of the night embarked on board their ships and sailed away. But the burning of the temple of Kebebi was afterwards alleged by Xerxes as the reason and the justification of his order for the destruction of the temples of western Hellas during his great invasion. End of section 10. Section 11 of Lives of Greek Statesmen by George William Cox. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Aristagoras, Part 2. In spite of the mysterious conduct of the Athenians, the revolt spread and began to assume formidable proportions. The people of Byzantion and of Cyprus plunged into the rebellion and their example was followed by the Carians, who showed in their resistance to the Persians a pertinacity and desperation of courage altogether beyond that of any of the genuine Hellenic tribes. While the Ionians underwent defeat after defeat, the Carians, in one of the battles which they fought, cut off a whole Persian army with three generals at its head but this disaster had no effect on the general issue of the revolt, and Aristagoras, now alarmed for his own safety, suggested to his allies the wisdom of finding a refuge either at Myrkanas or Sardinia. To this advice Hecataios objected as strongly as he had objected to his previous counsel. With great prudence he suggested that they would do better to fortify themselves in a neighbouring island, and there await an opportunity which would probably soon offer itself for forcing their way back into Miletus, and so for renewing the struggle. But Aristagoras was no longer in the humour for weighing any counsels opposed to his own. Sailing away to Myrkinas, the old home of Histiaios, he succeeded in gaining possession of the city, but marching afterwards against a Thracian town, he was defeated by a barbarian army and slain. 497 B.C. Meanwhile, the tidings of the Ionian revolt had disquieted the mind of Darius, who frankly expressed to Histiaios his suspicion that he had something to do with the rising. Histiaios replied that if he had been in Ionia, these things would never have happened that even now he was not sure that they had happened, and that he pledged himself, if he were sent thither, not merely to put down the rebellion, but to add to the Persian Empire Sardinia, which in the vague geographical conceptions of the time he described as the greatest of all islands. But when at Sardis he entered the presence chamber of Artaphernes, the satrap greeted him with more startling bluntness. It is just this, he said, you stitched the slipper which Aristagoras put on. Conscious of the danger threatened under this phrase, Histiaios made the best of his way to Chios, where the people who had taken him prisoner let him go, when they found that he was come to fight, not for Darius, but against him. His web of intrigue and falsehood was ingeniously spun. The Ionians generally, he sought to frighten, 
by telling them that darius intended to place them in phoenicia and to bring the phoenicians to ionia to the persians in sardis he sent letters which treated of a plan for revolt already concerted between them and himself trying next to force his way into miletus he received a wound in the thigh abandoning this project he persuaded the lesbians to man some triremes and sail under his command to byzantium where he turned against the ionians and seized all their ships entering from the black sea on hearing at length that miletus itself had fallen he returned to chios where he did much damage but he was now reduced to desperate straits and making a descent on the mainland opposite lesbos he began to reap the standing corn for his men who were now starving here he was surprised by a troop of persian cavalry under harpagos and surrendered himself in the hope that he would have no great difficulty in making his peace with darius but harpagos was resolved that he should have no opportunity histiaios was impaled by the order of artaphernes and his head was sent to darius who upbraiding those who had killed him ordered it to be buried as the head of one who had been a great benefactor to himself and to the persians such is the traditional story which deals with the acts and policy of two men who largely influenced the great ionian revolt against darius the revolt itself shows that the persian yoke was resented as an intolerable burden and whatever may have been the weakness and want of cohesion among the asiatic ionians we have here the evidence that they preferred the lot of their western brethren to their own but it is impossible to believe that in the narrative of the career of aristagoras and still more of his uncle we have a tale which may be implicitly trusted throughout and it is equally impossible to suppose that we may reject the story altogether all then that we can do is to sift it and to mark those points which are either unlikely or incredible if we cannot satisfactorily reconstruct the whole history in dealing with tales which may have come from persian sources we move among quicksands and we have also to remember that ionians would be strongly tempted to ascribe any failure to the evil-doing of their persian allies hence we may very fairly hold that the naxians had become aware of impending attack without believing that a persian officer placed in command of this large fleet and distinguished thus far by singular zeal and fidelity to his master's service became in a moment a deliberate traitor from a mere feeling of pique the movements of such a force could not possibly be concealed from those against whom they were directed and this story like so many others which throw themselves into the form of personal anecdote is seen to be superfluous in the camp according to this tale the quarrel between aristagoras and the admiral was notorious yet no tidings of it came it would seem to the ears of artaphernes and no inquiry is ordered by him into the causes of a failure which must seriously compromise his position with his master not less superfluous whatever may be said of its other characteristics is the story of histiaios 
he had done at Mirkanas nothing more than what he had proclaimed his intention to do. He had obtained the sanction of the Persian king to establish himself on the banks of the Strymon, and the building of walls, strong enough to resist the attacks of barbarian tribes, was an indispensable condition for his safety. How even a large increase in the strength of Mirkanas could become a menace to the Persian Empire, it is beyond our power to imagine. But from this point we find ourselves involved in a network of intrigue, falsehood, and wanton treachery, where two facts only seem to call for our acceptance, and these are the transference of Histiaios to Susa and his mission to the coast for the purpose of suppressing the revolt. All the details which are given to us of his acts in the interval must have come either from Histiaios himself, and he is represented as a systematic and shameless liar, or from a Persian source which it needs some courage to trust. Had Darius really suspected him, as we are told that he did, he would never have suffered him to leave Susa without a guard which would have effectually prevented his escape. If again Histiaios was guilty, we can scarcely understand his appearing before Artaphernes at all, or that Artaphernes should have allowed him to remain an instant longer at liberty, if it really was his belief that Histiaios had done the stitching of the shoe which Aristagoras had put on. We have also to remark the significant statements that Artaphernes put him to death at Sardis because he doubted his own ability to establish against him a case sufficiently clear to ensure his punishment at Susa, and that in fact Darius did not give credit to the charges on which he had been killed inasmuch as he insisted on his still being looked upon as one of the greatest of his benefactors. That the story of the mission of Aristagoras to Sparta has been colored by the imagination of a later age, there can be very little doubt. His whole address to Cleomenes rests on the practicability of conquering the Persian Empire. The Ionic cities are, it is true, to be delivered from a galling foreign yoke, but this is treated as quite a subordinate matter to the destruction of the power which had imposed this yoke on the Asiatic Greeks. Such a notion might have sprung up in the happier time during which the Persian tribute-gatherers disappeared from the regions bordering on the Aegean. But at the time of the Ionic Revolt, the grave statement of such a scheme must have been regarded as proof of frantic madness. And if this be so, what becomes of the brazen map exhibited at Sparta by Aristagoras? The Spartans would not have understood it, and they were only terrified and indignant at the lessons which Aristagoras sought to enforce by means of it. In short, the map is as superfluous as the story of the conduct of Megabates in the Naxian expedition. But unquestionably, the most perplexing and mysterious incident in the whole narrative of the Ionian revolt is the sudden retreat and disappearance of the Athenians after the accidental burning of Sardis. It is of the first consequence, toward a clear understanding of the time, to note that the position of Athens in reference to the Persian king had been definitely fixed by the intrigues of Hippias. 
the refusal of the athenians to receive him back as their tyrant had been taken by artifernes as a virtual declaration of war yet these people who had boldly disowned the obligations incurred in their name by their own ambassadors and who never failed when the struggle with persia had to be carried out on their own soil are now represented as without the least warning deserting those whom they had solemnly pledged to aid and doing so just at the moment when the prospect before them was most encouraging whatever may have been the facts there seems to be good ground for the suspicion that they have been distorted by the later fancies which exhibited aristagoras as formally propounding schemes for the overthrow of the persian empire End of section eleven